0: The Super Seventy Sports Podcast. Oh hell
1: yeah! Jr. and I were real good friends, and I, I remember hitting a home run off of him after one night we.
2: Valentine on last week's podcast talking about what it was like facing J.R. Richard and Nolan Ryan. Man, that must have been something. A reminder that Ellis is bringing the Pass Pros Roadshow to Plano, Texas on August 13th. Ellis is going to be on hand along with fellow former All-Stars Al Oliver, Don Stanhouse, and Jeff Russell. They'll be signing memorabilia on the 13th, there in Plano, you can learn more about the Past Pros Roadshow by going to passpros.com or checking them out at Pros on Twitter. And also, thanks again to my buddy Charlie Rexick and the Big Fellas for the uh, funky new Super 70 sports theme music. You can check them out at bigfellas.net. They're on Twitter at the Big fellas. And I should add, I'll be in Plano, Texas on August 13th for the Past Pros Roadshow, so once you've gotten your memorabilia signed and you've met some baseball all-stars, give me a shout. I'll be happy to talk to you. Uh, I couldn't be prouder today to have a real baseball legend on the podcast. Uh, A man who needs no introduction, but I'm going to give him one anyway. 398 career home runs, 5 Gold Glove Awards, 4 Silver Sluggers, a Lou Gehrig and Roberto Clemente award winner, Uh, a man who has exemplified and embodied what is really great about baseball throughout his career, a Hall of Famer in my book. Joining me now on the Super 70 Sports Hotline, 1982 and 1983 National League Most Valuable Player, Dale Murphy. Dale, how are
1: you? Doing great. Thanks for, for having me on. I, I, uh, uh, enjoy your Twitter feed; it's a lot of fun. Hey, thank and, you, and the podcast too. But the good stuff.
2: Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. It's a it's a thrill to have you on. Like a like a lot of folks my age. I'm I'm 44 years old. I grew up watching you on. Uh, I guess it was WTBS still maybe uh in those in those, yeah, early, <laughs> in those yeah. early days and you know that was one of the routine events of my life on a daily basis is uh, you know around 6:35 or 7:05 or you know whatever the the start time was in those days yeah. you, you know, you tuned in well, the Braves and
1: it was always 05 something <laughs> Yeah. You, you, and you know the reason why you have heard the reason why it's 05
2: Why is it 05? I don't I don't think I know.
1: Well well Ted's, well I should say, now a lot of games now start at 05, I think just because there's a short intro,
0: mm-hmm. you know,
1: and then they start. But Ted's initial, Ted Turner's initial reasoning was, uh, and it might have been a, even a little bit, I, well, I, his initial reasoning was there was a space in there where people were going around the channels trying to find something to watch. When when all other when all other uh, shows that either you you know there was just a space in there, and that's that's one of the reasons why I heard he he figured there was a chance he could he could get people looking for something during right. The time so he delayed it a little
2: bit. Yeah, it's kind and, of kind uh, of genius in a in a way.
1: Well, you know, I and I think I think Ted is recognizes. You know, I I don't think he invented. Well, he didn't invent. Satellite TV and all that stuff and cable, but he he, he almost perfected it. Well, I wouldn't. I don't know. You know what I'm saying? He sure. he saw he saw what, and so Ted was Ted, Ted was was a forward thinker. I mean, there obviously there Ted was a lot of things, but he he did see the value. For instance, we were on every night. People told him, "Don't do that, especially in Atlanta. You know, it's going to hurt you guys." Well, mm-hmm. what they found out was in Atlanta, it if we weren't playing well. It did hurt us, but if we were playing well, people it it helped our attendance. People wanted to come down and be a part of it, and uh, so you know he wasn't afraid. You know we uh, uh you know blacking games out in the Atlanta area, and uh and, and so Ted Ted you know just figured out real quickly that you know get uh, a lot of baseball games. Uh, you know if you had a dish, you know you could watch the Braves anywhere and. You know, I, I just got to say, I, I travel a lot now, and I speak a lot all over. My last experience was uh, North uh, North uh, Dakota. And occasionally, I'll say, I'll say, you know, how many of you watch the games on TBS? And uh, they, uh, you know, obviously, they're coming to hear me speak or whatever. And so I know there's going to be some Braves fans. But in Fargo, uh, North Dakota, I did it um, uh, last winter. And, you know, there, was a, uh, uh, there were probably 500 people little over a hundred raised their hand and uh afterwards a girl came up to me and said i just got to tell you what i did i didn't live in fargo but i lived about 20 miles outside of fargo but we watched every game and there was a dairy queen about nine or ten miles from where i lived and when they came out when the dairy queen came out with the sundays in the Braves' helmet, I stole a horse, and I rode to that Terry queen <laughs> to get that Atlanta Braves' helmet.
2: Oh uh, my gosh! But
1: I, I have a lot of fun traveling around the country, and I, you just wouldn't believe how many people come up to me and say what you said. Uh, we watched all the time. We love the Braves now, and we, we watched every day.
2: Yeah, I mean, you guys were later on, you know, the the idea of being a, a America's team, but you guys, I know for sure, were the team of the South at that time. With you know, no teams in Florida yet, and Florida's kind of its own thing, I guess in some respects. But 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 you guys were, I know in Kentucky where I grew up, tremendous number of Braves fans down there, and I think it was because you guys were on television and 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 they were watching you do your thing on a on a daily basis.
1: No, it was a, you know, I'm really thankful for it because, you know, it's, it, it helps me, uh, you know, as I go around, I, I, you know, I reconnect with Braves fans no matter where I'm at. It's a lot of fun. And you're right. Florida was our, was our state. We trained down in West Palm Beach. So there were no teams down there. Um, a lot of Braves fans there throughout the South, Southeast. Obviously, um, I think the Braves, Uh, back at that time generated what is now the largest uh, radio uh, baseball network uh, Mm -hmm. in the country or in the league uh, because of what um, they all did and I think Ernie Johnson Sr. of course uh, had a lot to do with getting those networks traveling around the southeast and of course Pete Van Weren and Skip Skip, uh, but I think early on Ernie I've heard, I've heard them give a lot of credit to Ernie senior for the radio network. Now, the other thing I just might add, the other thing that made us, you saw a local broadcast. If you were in Kentucky, no matter where you were, you saw, you saw uh, Ernie Johnson, Pete Van Weeren and Skip Carey. And then, you know, occasionally guys, other people, you know, came on board for a while, but you saw a local broadcast. They knew us. They, they joke about us. Um, and so, if you were in Kentucky or Idaho or North Dakota, you identified with the Braves. We had great announcers, and when we played well, of course, that that helped the uh, the interest. But even if we didn't play well, I, I was speaking in I can't remember Tennessee somewhere a couple of years ago. Uh, a guy came up to me. He said, "Here, I thought I thought you you'd like this." And my grandmother did this in Tri Cities area, of Washington State. But he gave me. Uh, like two years' worth of scorecards that his grandmother kept. Wow. And he goes, you know, I don't know if you can read it. She had her own way of keeping score. But, you know, you think about these things, and it just really makes you thankful to be a part of it. And, and uh, you know, we had great announcers. We had an uh, interesting owner. We started playing better and really just generated a following. And then when 82 and 83, when we started doing really well we'd go to st louis and our hotel would be packed with uh, atlanta braves fans and uh san francisco i remember someone came down from alaska because that was the closest team, you know place he could go and
2: mm-hmm.
1: you're starting to think it's just fun to be a part of
2: well that that 82 season is one that very you know very memorable you, you guys started out i think 13 and 0 in, in 82 and just kind of captured uh the, the imagination of uh, you, you know your fan base uh, it, it, right out of the gate that season and I believe that the the last time before 82 that the Braves had been to the playoffs was in 69 so there'd been quite a drought there and you know a number of losing seasons uh in the in the late 70s and into the early 80s that 82 season really kind of changed the, the dynamic a lot. How, how much fun was that for you?
1: Yeah, it was a lot of fun. It's interesting. Uh, you know, I I didn't remember this. Someone reminded me um, a while ago. We started out 13-0. and 0. We played one game over 500 the
2: rest of the year. <laughs> <laughs> well, it got the job done. <laughs> yeah,
1: that's about... That, that's best way to put it. Uh, but it was fun. I mean, you look at the uh, it was so exciting for the city because it'd been so long and it, it wasn't really expected. We were picked to be about 500 also and we went the first two weeks without losing. And when you see the, the, uh, the video of that 13th win, people ran on the field to celebrate like it was a World Series. And we're running off the field trying to dodge people. I mean, it, it was just it was crazy and it was a lot of fun and uh yeah no question it was fun to be a part of we <laughs> finished you know the rest of the year going one game over 500 we had some really rough stretches and we barely snuck in there um ahead of the uh um uh ahead of the Dodgers so it, but it was it was but you know, close as I got to the World
2: Series, so it was a lot of fun. Well, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. I want to go back because, of course, I want to talk about your MVP seasons, and of course, '82 was your was your first MVP year. But I, a lot of people forget. Now, I know from the. From the tweet that I posted about the fact that you were going to come on the podcast, I had you know so many people who responded back. You know, Dale was my favorite player, and and I, and I know that your your biggest fans are, are well aware of this, but I think a lot of people forget that you were a catcher in the minor leagues and broke into the big leagues as a catcher. One of the things that I was looking at and I was thinking about is you know just right out of the gate, you're being asked to catch Phil Negro. And I was wondering, what was that experience like catching Negro when you were a rookie? And had you ever caught a knuckleballer before that?
1: No, never had. And it, but but you know what? If you get drafted as a catcher, what's fun is you get invited to big league camp. You know, as a rookie minor league player. Uh, I mean, I was I was the first pick. You know, in '74. But being a catcher. It didn't matter how much experience I had. They need you need catchers in spring training mm-hmm. for the first couple of weeks because you got so many pitchers and every you know catchers don't catch nine innings and so I I my first spring train I got signed in seventy four and so the spring of seventy five I I went to big league camp and of course he was there and I imagine uh, you know I obviously I, I I'm guessing that I. I caught a little, uh, uh, you know, and, and uh, caught him a little bit in the bullpen. I mean, you know, warming up, he, does, he, does, he didn't, as I recall, throw a ton of knuckleballs, you know, because, uh, he, you know, it's the kind of thing you kind of throw, you know, generally right down the middle and hope it stays in the strike zone. So it wasn't something he could work on his location. You know, he just just got went down there and got loose. So being in 75, I probably caught him, you know, maybe in the bullpen and, i'm sure he threw me a few knuckleballs i faced him you know in bp but he didn't throw knuckleballs to hitters because you know we couldn't hit it so right. you know when you're when you're facing it the first couple of weeks uh, you're facing lives uh your own pitchers for just for a few times so anyway yeah i get called up in 76 they throw me right in there i don't know how many games i caught in 76 but you know, I got called up September call up, and I, I think I had quite a few. Yeah,
2: seventeen. And
1: uh, how many? Seventeen. Yeah, and and so no, I it he was it's just scary. <laughs> I mean, guys get on base, not catching. You know, his knuckleball. Phil was a great teammate, and he was patient with all his catchers. But you know, here's a young kid, not really, you know knowing what's going on, and all of a sudden i got to get in there. Guys get off base. You know, you're trying to catch it and throw them out. Guys get two strikes on them. You're, you're trying to keep it in front of you so they don't go down to first base and you on a drop third strike. Guy on third, you're so nervous you're, it's going to be a pass ball. So I remember a couple things. I believe it was 76. It could have been 77. I think it was 76. I'm catching him. It might have been his last start of the year, and we're in Cincinnati against the Reds at that time. That's the big red machine. And I'm catching him, and we go into the ninth inning with a no-hitter.
0: <laughs> oh, man.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm just, I am just, I just don't know what to do. I think we, I I can't remember the details. Except I think we got an out. Cesar Geronimo came up and dunked one in, and, and he ended up either with a one or two hitter or something. I remember catching one in my bare hand. my uh, uh, It moved so much. I always put my other hand up there to you know, try to at least, you know, uh, well, maybe this is why I did it. It moved so much. It hit me in my bare hand. I didn't even mean to. <laughs> It hit me in my bare hand. Uh, I remember. I think that was L.A. And another time in L.A., uh, he's getting ready to throw it, and a moth went in my mask. <laughs> and and all of a sudden, oh, I was. And I think the guy fouled it off or something, but I couldn't see the ball. <laughs> and then I think uh, I think it was uh, the Astrodome. I think I had four or five pass balls. I think I had five, and uh, it might have been close to a record. Uh, I would have had six, but Willie Montanez, so that probably was 76. Uh, Willie Montanez said Bob Watson was on first, and I, and it went past me, and <laughs> Willie said, Hey, I saved you a pass ball there. And uh, <laughs> I told him, I, as soon as it went by you, I said, I yelled at Watson, foul ball, foul ball. <laughs> and Watson didn't, didn't go down to second. So, uh, no, not, I told him, he, you know, you'd have a, He'd have got the 300 victories a lot quicker if I wasn't as good for so many
2: things. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, I was looking at your, your game log in 76 when you came up as a rookie, and one of the most impressive feats of your career, as far as I'm concerned, is the first time you caught Necro. I believe he went the distance. Uh, I think he did. He at least worked deep into the game, and you didn't have any pass balls. So I think really? that's I think that's pretty darn. Now he now he tagged you with a few <laughs> subsequently, but you you made it through that first game clean. So I think that's pretty well, do impressive. Any, do
1: you see any uh, Houston games
2: there? Well, let's see. I've got the seventy six game log here. Let's see Houston. Yeah, the uh, s- second, third, and fourth games that you caught in the big leagues were against uh, Houston. Yeah. at Houston. Uh, at the, th- those were in Atlanta. Although you did catch a couple, okay. you did catch a couple in September uh, at the Dome. Okay, do
1: you see my pass balls by any chance? Let's
2: see. Uh, I can't. No, it doesn't say here where the <laughs> where, yeah. where the pass balls were. Well,
1: that might have been seventy seven. I can't remember when those those were, but yeah. The, the problem with the Astrodome was he had his best knuckleball in the Astrodome. It was unbelievable in the Astrodome because the wind in, in an outdoor stadium would kind of offset, you know, would kind of make it tumble a little bit more. Mm-hmm. And when it tumbled a little bit more, it became, the movement became a little predictable. But when he was thrown with no wind... No wind in his, he didn't like wind at his back. Wind in his face was helpful, but when there was no wind, the thing just went all, it just went all over the place. And, uh, that's, that's one, I, I had a, I had a game with a lot of pass balls there.
2: <laughs> well, I'll have to, I'll have to look into that and, uh, see, see if I can locate that game. I, I, you know, I was going to ask you about ballparks. What were your, your favorite parks? Cause you played in an era where, Obviously, there were a lot of astroturf fields. The the dome itself. What was the what was the dome like for a for a hitter?
1: Well, generally speaking, uh, it, it being an astroturf field, first of all, it was, it was you know, not astroturf. Any of the astroturf fields were for pretty, were good for singles because uh, the ball got through the infield quick, and especially if the if there was a little rain. I mean, it was it, it was like ice. So, if you hit a ball on the ground,
2: uh, you know,
1: uh, your chances of getting it, there was, you know, no grass to slow it up. Uh, so hitting on turf was fine as far as angles were concerned. And then, uh, so hitting in the dome was fine in that respect, but hitting in the dome in every other respect was not very fun. Um, it, it was, it played big, um, uh, high fences, um, and, and then you gotta go through their, their pitching staff at that time was you know, and into the into the eighties was no fun. J. R. was there, J. R. Richard. I don't know remember when Nolan got there, but Joe Negro was there too, and one of the Forsch brothers. And you know, they they were they were playing well and so I think we got no hit first game of the season on I'm guessing it was seventy nine. I can't remember. 78, 79. Um, by force, um, and so no one really liked to hit there. It, it just, and when I moved to the outfield, he didn't like the the outfield was real tricky because they had panes of glass up there that weren't dark enough. So if you took your eye off the ball, you could lose the ball in a in a day game. You could lose the ball in the in the. Uh, they weren't clear, see through glass. It was just really hard to see. Right. So not a very good background it seemed really cavernous kind of like uh um uh olympic stadium in montreal you you got a bad background bad depth perception so it was definitely a home field advantage especially in the astronome and olympic stadium for that matter too but you know i had one good year a really good year in the astronome um but but i i don't know the reason why (laughs) it was just (laughs) one of those things because i I didn't like it. there.
2: No one really did. So what were the parks where where you, you know, when you were going on the, I mean, I guess at that point in time, you know, Fulton County Stadium, everybody called it the launching pad, and, you know, it was considered a a pretty good park for hitters. Pretty sure you were comfortable hitting there. What were the parks on the road where, you know, you kind of lit up a little bit when uh, you you knew you were going to get some at-bats there? Well,
1: yeah, of course, love to hit in Fulton County Stadium. It was a great place to hit. Um, back then, the places uh, I liked to hit was really weird. Uh, for some reason, I didn't necessarily like to play in Candlestick, especially, especially um, uh, the outfield and the sun and the wind, but. You know, uh, I, I must have got off to a good start when I, when I got called up in my early years in in the late seventies in Candlestick because I, over my career, I, I hit well there. Um, Dodger Stadium, you know, a lot of these, these ballparks, when you're, when you ask me what it was like, it kind of depends what kind of pitching staff they have.
2: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Funny how that matters. (laughs)
1: Yeah. Never remember doing much in Dodger Stadium. I'm sure I did something, but. I did a lot in San Diego at Jack Murphy Stadium uh, because, you know, for... Uh, really, honestly, they just didn't have a good staff for quite a few years. Uh, but Dodgers were always tough. Uh, Veterans Stadium was, was was pretty good. It was the typical round stadium of the 70s and Three Rivers and Riverfront, uh, you know, the same thing. But balls, balls carried well in... Uh, Cincinnati. So, you know, I like that. Wrigley, back then, Wrigley was, uh, it was kind of the same, wind blowing out, great place to hit, wind blowing in, not a lot of fun, but the grass was always seen like four or five inches long. Uh, uh, it was really frustrating to try to get one through the grass there. So you go from an turf field, you know, in Philadelphia, and then you go to Chicago, and you can't get anything through the infield. So, uh, uh you know, the stadiums are a little unique. Olympic Stadium, uh, that was not a lot of a lot of fun. I don't know if I played there when I got called up in the, in the late 70s. But uh, so Candlestick Dodger Stadium was fun just because it was, you know, a cool. It, it is now. It was a cool stadium there then. And, uh, and you know, what's interesting is Dodger Stadium and Wrigley Field are the only stadiums they play baseball in now that that's, I played in.
2: That's right. That's... Hard to believe, isn't it? It doesn't seem possible.
1: I I know. It's, it's crazy. Just two fields, two stadiums, uh, uh, unless I'm, I'm missing something. No. Not that they're not standing like uh, it's Qualcomm or whatever the Chargers are. Right, right. But, but even a lot of them are, are, are just,
2: not even standing. They're not, yeah, they're gone. <laughs> I went by the Astrodome last year and just walked around the outside of it. I'm just kind of sitting there decaying right now kind of sad yeah, really yeah.
1: that's what i've that's what i've heard well it's sad for some people but i think a lot of us will be happy when they <laughs> get that thing gone which so we'll never see it again
2: <laughs> <laughs> well you know I, yeah well i didn't have to face uh, jr richard and nolan ryan there so it's easy for me no, to, it it's was, easy for me to be nostalgic about it
1: yeah <laughs> yeah it was, uh, it, was uh, it, it, it was a tough place to play definitely. Home
2: field I don't know if this would surprise you or not. I, of course, I have the advantage of having your career stats in front of me right now, but the ballpark where you had the highest career batting average and your highest slugging percentage of any ballpark, and, it, and we, unless I'm mistaken, uh, we, we haven't mentioned it yet, it was Shea Stadium. Is that right? Yeah. You hit two ninety three at Shea Stadium with a five eighteen slugging percentage. Which are your high marks for uh, any ballparks wow. that you played in.
1: <laughs> that, that surprised me. Of course, it, what's weird is, is you know, I probably have more cumulative stuff because, remember, in in uh, San Francisco and San Diego. That's true. Because, That's true. Because, because we were in the Western Division. So right. It was kind of weird, remember, back then. Uh, it was great for us to go out to the West Coast so much because we got a break from the humidity. And now that they're in the Eastern Division, you know they just don't get out there so much. I lo- you know, obviously love going out there, um, but that does surprise me. Uh, just that my my batting average would be that. You know, th- those stats do surprise me because I, I don't I don't remember early, you know, early uh, you know Craig Swan. I think Kuzman was still there. Kuzman, uh, was not, uh, uh, you know, he was not the young flamethrower. Uh, but I know I didn't do much in the 80s there. <laughs> but I think I did enough to keep my average. I didn't do anything against Doc Gooden. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, that's a team really as well that their staff was just not fantastic, you know, until Gooden and Darling and, you know, where, where, uh, but that that does surprise me. The noise and the and and you know, uh, um, uh, LaGuardia it used to drive me crazy. And back then the jets were much louder than they are now. You just like hurt your ears when they. You'd have to call timeout, wait for the th- you know. Was, sometimes in the middle of you're you know middle of the windup you start hearing that jet engine, and you're like, <laughs> oh, I'm gonna be hitting right in the middle of the It just was so I didn't necessarily like it. So it really surprises me.
2: You know, I one of the things that is really striking to me about your career is just kind of because of the period that you played in, you you obviously faced every uh, great pitcher that came through the National League in the 1980s, but but you faced a lot of guys who were who were big names in the 70s and even the 60s. In terms of the the toughest pitchers that you ever faced during your career the guys that you know i'm sure on one hand you relish the challenge and and uh, on the other hand you know maybe maybe you wish that you were facing you know the number 5 starter that day instead but who were the guys that for you you look back on it and and you know they stand out as just being extra tough
1: well extra extra tough when i broke in you know i always talk about j r richard especially in the astrodome you know, but, but JR, you kind of see, he, you know, he, he was no fun to face, very intimidating. He'd strike you out a couple times, but JR was still, except for a couple of, man, yeah. Look, I, you know, the listeners should just Google Jr. stats, and I don't remember, 78, 79, 79, 80. I mean, three, over 300 strikeouts two years in a row before he had his, his stroke.
2: That's right. Uh,
1: I mean, he was just rolling. And so, you know, he, if you just kind of hang, hung around, you'd he, make more mistakes than say a guy like Hershiser. Mm-hmm. Uh, so most of the guys I think about, except for Jr. and Nolan, you know, come back into the '80s. Hershiser, Maddox, uh, you know, uh, Souter, uh, relievers, guys I had trouble with. I'm I'm trying to think now, but it was fun for me to and and just it was just really uh, a strange experience. For me to i signed in 74 and just two years later i got called up to the, to the major league so i've i'm watching a high uh game of the week in the 70s and as a kid i'm watching in the 60s and there were still some guys around uh and in spring training i'd face catfish hunter blue keon um uh a number of the the old uh, giants uh, uh pitchers and uh You know, it was just so strange. Uh, uh, I faced Tom Seaver when he was with the, with the, uh, with the Reds. You know, I didn't get any of those guys in their heyday, and I'm, I'm really thankful for that. I got Steve (laughs) Carlton, uh, you know, into the 80s, but he, he became more of a pitcher than a young, big left-handed power pitcher. Uh, so some of the guys that were the big names, they could still pitch, um, But I felt a little more comfortable off. But they—they knew what they were doing. I could tell Tom Seaver had turned into a real pitcher, and uh, um, with his location, instead of just trying to blow you away. But it was—it was really uh, a strange thing. I remember going to Cincinnati facing Don Gullett. It was just—it was. uh, I think it was '76, and just '75. They had that great series with the. With the Reds, I was just kind of awestruck. I was just out there swinging as hard as I could to
2: see what happened. (laughs) Well, see, that's one of the things for me as a fan, and of course... I look at it with a, with a, you know, different pair of eyes as, as a fan than, than obviously you do as a, as a player. But at one time or another, you know, you, you were a fan too, you know, when you were growing up, before yeah. you were, yeah. <laughs> before you were Dale Murphy, when you were, when you were still Dale yeah. Murphy, but young Dale Murphy, you know, your the way that you looked at it probably wasn't a lot different than, you know, your average fan. One of the things that I've always found to be a question that is interesting is how hard is it for you to get over that feeling of being starstruck when you first come up and you look out there and it's a guy that you grew up watching. Are are you able, because some players that I've talked to for my book tell me, oh, that wasn't a problem. Uh, Other guys have told me, yeah, that was was something that I kind of had to (laughs) work my way around because you look out there and you see that it's, you know, this famous guy.
1: No, nah, it's weird. I mean, you know, getting in the box with, say, some Don Gullett, with the guy you—I was a catcher, Johnny Bench. I was a catcher in high school, and Johnny Bench was my guy. It, it, I don't remember. I'm probably just thinking, I—you like, know—this is—I can't. This is really weird. You know, Uh I gotta say something. <laughs> I remember one of my early at bats. You know, uh, I'm a big, tall guy, young kid, and I'm I'm kind of digging in in the box, you know, trying to get settled. I'm facing Don Bell. I do remember this specifically, and I hear a whistle from the Reds' dugout, you know, and I just kind of glanced up, and Johnny looks over, and Sparky is is uh, making a sign to Johnny. You know, you, you just you just uh, uh, Right or left hand across your chest, meaning you know, throw throw, throw him up and in. Go you know? uh-huh. so up, you know. You got. He's a big, tall guy. Up and in. And I remember, I, you know, I just kind of, gla- I just it was weird. I just glanced. I heard something out of the corner of my eyes It's a so Sparky give Johnny. So I, I, I looked up and in, and uh, I looked inside, and I ended up hitting a double off a of goal. I don't, I, as I recall, I don't know if it was that particular bat, but the rest of the game, I definitely was going to look inside. Uh, but I don't really remember. I I just remember it being really kind of surreal, you know. And once you, once I got in the box, uh, you know, I just uh, you know, you're just you're just trying to calm your nerves when you first get called up. But it's really a weird thing when you have really limited exposure of baseball and TV, mm-hmm. uh, one game a week on Saturday, and a lot of people watch it because it's not very thin so you know we were all watching that we all watched that and you know of course the reds were great and I just watched the series you know it it was a really strange feeling I don't remember having a problem overcoming it but I do remember how strange it 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 did feel and you know uh, I lived in the Bay Area in fifth and sixth grade before we moved back to Portland Oregon where I was uh, born and I went to a Oakland A's game and I'm just standing out there, you know, 6th grade by the bullpen and it was, uh, I believe Red Sox I think Sparky Lyle was with the Red Sox then. and he goes, hey kid and he threw me a ball and so, oh, great. I go to big league, I go to big league camp but, you know uh, I'm kind of a shy young kid and Sparky Lyle I think he was with the Rangers then and I went up to him I said, hey, Sparky, I introduced myself. He goes, yeah, yeah, where are you from? I go, you know, and I said, hey, I, I got to tell you, when I was in sixth grade, <laughs> you threw a ball to me. And he goes, you ever tell me that story again and make me feel this role? I'm going to be so mad at you. So every time every time I ran into Sparky, I, I'd go tell him, tell him that. So
2: <laughs> That's terrific. It was,
1: you know, it's, it is a weird feeling. The Dodgers. That great team and Garvey and just uh, it was a real. Um, it's a strange feeling. It's really a strange feeling. Um, it's it's hard to describe.
2: You know, Dell. I got to ask. You broke in as a catcher, and we all know. Five gold gloves in the outfield, and and we remember we remember that obviously, uh, robbing home runs and and running down balls in the gap, and and you know just you were a terrific outfielder. But when we think of a gold glove outfielder, we don't normally think of somebody who kind of made the positional sequence that you did to get there, starting out as a catcher and then moving to first base before you got to the outfield, and and ultimately you know became a great outfielder defensively. I guess catcher and first base in some ways maybe are kind of the two most social positions during a game where maybe there's there's more conversation going on there. What, what kind of th- things are guys saying to each other during a game uh, down at first base or when the batter steps in and it looks like he's saying something to the catcher or to the umpire because that's the thing where I sometimes I, as a fan I watch a game and I wish that guys were mic'd up so so you know, you, can, you can know what kind of talk is going on out there. What did you guys talk about during games?
1: Yeah, you know, it's interesting you say that. That's a good observation that catcher and first base are more social and I, I'm not a big talker so... And especially when I was catching, I was so young. You know, you're like, you just don't want to say anything to anybody. You don't really know anybody, right? <laughs> and so, but usually, you know, after a while, it's a. Uh, and I always my first at bat. All I ever did was, you know, hey guys, how you doing? Good luck or something like that, or, you know, how's it going? And then just kind of start playing. Right. I, I didn't like to. I didn't like to talk when I was hitting, Obviously. So one time, you know, Gary Carter was was known for talking, and you know, I I don't remember what happened exactly. I think we're playing in Montreal, but you know, that just this, you asked me that question reminds me every time. I say, timeout, Gary, you please stop talking. I'm trying to. Get- <laughs> of course, that's why he was talking.
0: So, right. So,
1: right. You know. I mean, I had a lot of kids. It took him, you know, about 10 minutes to go through each of my kids, you know. <laughs> I'm like, Gary, I'm trying to hit. And, uh, uh, so at first base, you know, same kind of thing. I just, I didn't talk a lot, but, uh, um, and so there's not a lot of conversation unless you know, know the guy, um, uh, you know, that you maybe talk a you actually in baseball, you know, if they foul it off, you may have a couple seconds there to, say something a little more personal, but usually it's, you know, how you doing? Hey, you're you're swinging well, or you know, you're not, you know, how's it going, and uh, you know, what do you think about that guy there? Sometimes he's <laughs> not, and, and so, it's kind of funny. I remember John Cruck. I got to first base once with, when he was with San Diego, and I was really struggling, and I got on first base, and he goes, how you doing, Murph? I go, I'm, I'm not doing... I'm not doing so good, Johnny. And he goes, he goes, yeah, I noticed that. I looked up at your stats, you know, your first bat of the game. And I just got to tell you, I thought I was doing bad. But, uh, you're making, you know, you're making me feel a little better with those numbers you're putting up there. <laughs> <me."> <laughs> thanks a lot, man. Cool. So, that's funny. you know, sometimes it's kind of funny. I think everybody who plays thinks they're a comedian sometimes just because that's, you know, you're trying to lighten the mood. But, uh, usually small talk sometimes I'm sure it gets a little heated but uh, usually uh, just kind of the how you doing
2: and kind of get going stuff. Well, Dale, I know that your fans are, that, that want me to ask you about the MVP seasons. And obviously you you strung together more than a couple of MVP caliber seasons there uh, in your prime, but winning the award in, in 82 and 83. What's that like to, to be, you're in rarefied air, you know, not only being an MVP, but being a, a back-to-back winner, uh, taking the gold glove and silver slugger, those seasons as well. What's that like to be, a, you know, 26, 27 year twenty-seven-year-old guy and be recognized as not only an all-star but the best player in your league?
1: Oh, you know, I, I was—I'm glad I played in Atlanta because—and I almost might add to that—the the social media and stuff right now is—I don't know if I would have handled that very well. Just the constant, constant exposure of how you're doing. Uh, um, uh, I think I was in Atlanta because, you know, that was kind of the, the, the market I could handle. I didn't feel like a New York guy. Maybe later on in my career, and you know, I did have some rumors about getting traded to the Mets, would that have worked? But I think I was in the place I needed to be. And then, then you win an MVP and, and it, it you know, it's obviously, it's not, you know, it, it, there, there's always this, this thing with athletes. There's the fear of failure and the fear of success too because you know you you don't ever want to fail but, but man all of a sudden I went out of the envelope uh, you know I did some things well and then all of a sudden 82 I'm in the running for MVP I, I knew I was and and I and so it it, it was a little nerve-wracking actually I was like wow what you know what's gonna happen now I mean where where do I go from here and I really just started to concentrate on saying to myself okay you know i, I don't know what's going to happen next year but i am going to prepare and work hard and do what i can uh to be prepared to have a good year and then you know there's nothing else you can do so i used it kind of as motivation uh just to you know be in good shape lift the weights which we started to do at that uh, time in baseball a little bit more and uh and just play hard. Look, you, you know, I don't know what's going to happen. But I try not to get scared of the success and just constantly say, okay, this has got to motivate me. Go to spring training. Do your extra work that you got to do and let things kind of happen. And, and not to be, too, you know, uh, uh, not to be all modest about it but also you look at people's careers and there's got to be some good timing on some of these awards
0: mm-hmm. and
1: i think 83 was my best year and and uh you know hitting very home runs, stealing 30 bases and having a good year you know 82 was a time of of good timing was a year of good timing uh you look at hank aaron's career i mean how many years could hank have won the mvp uh, you know, if he wasn't in that era playing against the guys he played with and uh, so I was really fortunate at 82 my numbers weren't, weren't eye-popping by any means, I think I hit 280-something and so you know, I was really thankful for that I, I feel very fortunate and uh, uh, it was very humbling and I tried not to get too nervous about the future after winning awards like that and just tried to say, okay You just gotta play hard. If that's, if that's the only thing you control is play hard and, uh, you know, get through it and, you know, try to have the success help you instead of make you nervous about trying to live up to it, which is some, sometimes kind of a, can be a challenge too. Um, but I look at a lot of people and timing, um, I think Pedro Guerrero finished, uh, second to me in 83 and he had a great year, you know, if, if i hadn't had the year it probably would have been Pedro or i'm just i can't remember exactly so i feel like i was very fortunate with timing played with some real good teams it was fun to come to the ballpark and i was finally figuring out how to hit and i had a position i could play and I felt really a part of things,
2: and uh, it was it was great memories. D- Dale, one of the one of the things that really stands out for me from watching the Braves in the '80s, and I know a lot of my listeners are are going to remember this as well, is the huge brawl that you guys had with the San Diego Padres uh, in <laughs> in 1984, where things just I mean, you know, there are bench-clearing incidents and skirmishes and you know some outright brawls, but uh, for anybody that remembers the Padres Braves brawl in '84, it's kind of the it's kind of the gold standard, I think, for uh, things just going uh, off the rails. And it, it, you know, and it's particularly kind of interesting for me to ask you a question about it because. You know you were you've been known for many years as one of the gentlemen uh, of baseball, and so it's kind of a a circumstance that you don't necessarily expect to see Dale Murphy in the, in the you know the middle of uh, what are your memories of that day and how that game just kind of got completely out of hand?
1: Yeah, it's funny you know two of the my most memorable games of my career involved uh, July 4th. we went you know till three or four in the morning and it's it's the Rick Camp game. Rick yes, Camp hit yes. Home run. <laughs> I remember that I well. Know, I, I don't even know what I did. And the other game is the brawl in 84. I mean, I should have got into some more world series. So <laughs> you'd say, "Hey, <laughs> how was that 85 I was that 85 series." But it's funny, uh two of the games people ask me about it, is is the brawl against Padres in that that uh July 4th game where Rick Camp hit that home run to put us into extras, but yeah, no, you know, it it was just the that brawl was the weirdest thing I had ever been a part of, you know, the weirdest thing I've been a part of in my career, I mean, not that I had never been in a brawl before, uh, and my theory was always, and and Hoyt Wilhelm, you know, told us in the minor leagues, he said, look, if something happens, you, you better be out there, he, he, he said, look, I'm not telling you to go out and hit somebody, but th- this is your team, so you better be there. So I always tried, you know, to to get to the brawl as soon as I could and to, you know, grab someone, either the other team or my, even my teammate, just to pull them apart. I didn't want to go in there, you know, and hit people, but I wanted to try to stop it from people getting hurt. But, you know, what happens is... Everybody can get hurt, even when you're pulling guys off. And I remember trying to pull Dave Kingman out of a pile. And oh my, I'd never met a stronger guy in my life. He just would not budge, <laughs> and uh, one of the strongest people ever. Uh, but they, the, the yeah, the big brawl was really uh, in a nutshell. Um, Caswell Perez out of nowhere. Uh, and of course, the Padres were in first. We're in second. Nothing's going on. No reason to hit anybody. No retaliation. First pitch of the game, he hits Alan Wiggins right in the back, and uh, they start yelling at each other. And we're just kind of like, "Wow, that came out of nowhere!" Because fastball had good control. And the word was, after it was all over, you know, uh, maybe when when uh, I ended up playing with Greg Dettles in my career, he said Dick Williams after that inning said. Okay, as long as Pasquale's in the game, every at-bat, I want him hit. Every at-bat. Oh, we're man. not going to retaliate once. We're going to retaliate every time he comes up. So we go, you know, first inning, nothing happens. I go, well, I don't know, maybe they're not going to do anything. Second inning, you know, third inning or whenever Pasquale maybe got up, you know, maybe we hit, hit around a little bit. So I think it was the third inning or something. Pasquale comes up. Ed Whitson throws one over his head and does something else. And, you know, it was funny. They couldn't hit him. <laughs>
0: All
2: right,
1: right. So, so they kept trying. They kept trying. Ed Whitson gets taken out of the game. I think they finally walk in that at bat or something. He stays in the game. Nothing happens, you know. No one does anything. Next time Pasquale comes up, new pitcher. Down goes Paswell, and then and then we all started retaliating against each other. Uh, uh, there were a few guys, you know, on Padres be- uh, bench. Who we're just gonna kill Pasquale. <laughs> and so it, then we had brawls over by the stands, by the dugout. Fans started uh, throwing beer on the on the on the on people. A fan came on the field. A fan got in the fight on the field. Uh, Bob Warner famously is standing in our dugout trying. To, he was upstairs. He had a. He was doing radio. Put on a jersey or something. Came down. Was protecting Pasquale well from Champ Summers. Going in our dugout, or Champ Summers probably would have gone up into our clubhouse. And Bob was there to. Uh, it, it, and then, then at the end of the game, we all started. Uh, our pitchers were started throwing at Everybody else. And I think we all thought it was over. And then Donnie Moore threw it, Greg Nettles. And so there you go. For years, I know John Holland, visiting clubhouse manager in Atlanta uh, for the Braves. Uh, but for on the visiting side, he had a tape of it. And people for years say, hey, John, were you here? He goes, I sure was here. You want to see it? <laughs> uh, and I think we still get some kind of award for one of the best fights in baseball. And, uh... And so we did. We did uh, win a lot of World Series. Uh, well, we didn't win any while I was there, but we got some awards. <laughs> <laughs>
2: hey, you know, it's a, its never a bad thing to be remembered.
1: <laughs> yeah, it was a mess. Glenn Hubbard hurt his shoulder in that fight, and it bothered him the rest of his career.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's—it's it's dangerous.
1: That one got out of out of control, and it was the—you know—before all the warnings and you know. But there were there's still some warnings. that guys got thrown out. Dick Williams got thrown out. Uh, the manager and a bunch of guys got thrown out, and uh, it was just—it uh, was the weirdest day. Just, it seemed like every other inning we fought.
2: One question I really want to ask you is: 1987, there was a home run surge uh, around baseball that year, and of course, this is pre-steroid era and and before. Uh, we kind of got desensitized to these kind of insane uh, power numbers that, that people were posting in the in the late 90s and the early part of uh, the, the 2000s. But looking back on it now, almost 30 years on, do, do you think that there was anything different about the baseballs in, in 87?
1: Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, I hit a career high of 44. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Dawson led led the league that year with 49. Somebody asked me this the other day, and I, I, I looked it up, and I think in both leagues there were several hundred more hit than the year before. I believe that's right. Uh, I, yeah. Almost uh, almost everybody had career highs. And so, uh, you know, it, it's one thing to hit a ball, you know, where, where you hit it, you know, and you know it's out. And it's another thing what has happened to me and a lot of guys that year. You would hit a ball, you'd say, well, you know, maybe, and it would go out. And so a lot of the maybes went out. And I don't remember, you know, they've talked about it, you know, since then, that, you know, baseball was trying to generate a little more offense. And and, uh, and I can't remember what years. And you're right, some things get a little muddy with the steroid situation. But in 87... I don't have another explanation for it. It's the, the only thing, the, the only common thing in all these home runs in 87 was the ball. And I definitely think it was fiddled with. Uh, and um, so when they say now, uh, you know, hey, do you think they ever fiddled with the ball? I, well, I, I said, yeah, that's what happened in 87 because I never would have hit 44 home runs. Uh, without all little juice, I don't go into that long explanation about '87 unless people ask me directly, like you. But sometimes they'll say, "Boy, you did had a great year in '87." I just say, "Yeah." <laughs> and, but uh, but sometimes if I'm sitting with talking people, I'll say, "You know what happened that year?" And they'll just say, "Are you serious?" I go, "Yeah we all we all felt it." And I think the numbers proved it
2: out. Well, you know, 44 for Dale Murphy's one thing, but the thing I remember about that year is Wade Boggs, I believe, had 24 <laughs> over in the American League. And, you know, Wade Boggs was usually good for about five sure. or six, you know. and uh, Oh, yeah. And so about you that. you think something's fishy here when Wade Boggs is, you know, hitting 24 home runs.
1: Right. So no, a lot of guys that had 10, had 20, everybody went up. And, uh I th- I think the ball was juiced. Yeah, they, they wound up tighter or whatever you call it. But, you know, but uh, I, I was thankful for it. It was fun.
2: Well, you know, as we're as we're kind of getting down towards the, the the end of your career here in, in in this discussion, I, you know, it was in August of nineteen ninety that that you were traded to the Phillies, and I, I was kind of wondering, uh, you know, where were you at mentally at that point in terms of. Uh, you know, making that transition in your career and, and in your life because, you know, there are very few players even now. I mean, you know, obviously you played for the Phillies two or three years and, and, uh, also, uh, you know, wound up, uh, playing a little bit with the Colorado Rockies. But you are one of those guys that is always going to be associated with the Atlanta Braves, you know, in such a way as if you had spent your entire career there. You and Hank Aaron and, and, and some guys like that are, 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 you know, on the Mount Rushmore of, uh, of Atlanta Braves. What was it like you know, putting on a Philadelphia Phillies jersey and, and going out there after having spent all those years in the Braves organization?
1: Well, it was really weird, and, and I appreciate what you said about being part of the Braves, because you know, a lot of us are, you know, chipper spent his whole career there, but you go to Glav and Spolts, and most guys, you know, Chipper and uh, Derek Jeter, and maybe, there, I know there's a few more, but very few, it just isn't the way it is, uh, you know, you don't, you just it's hard to stay, and uh, and so, you know, I never, I had a great experience in Philadelphia and Colorado, and I uh, uh, didn't play very well, so I'll, I'll tell you what I mean in a second, but my state of mind at that point was I really, uh, you know, you start getting a little bit older and, uh, you start, you know, you, uh, we were playing terrible. Uh, things were just really crummy. And, um, I didn't really, I, I just, I, I just felt it was good for me and I didn't necessarily say, Oh, it's going to be good for the Braves. It ended up being good. Dave justice came up and had a great career there. And, and, uh, but I, you know, selfishly speaking, which I hadn't really done anything selfishly in my career, I wanted to stay there. But selfishly, I needed something that would get me going. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I went to Bobby and I just said, "Bobby, I'm, I'm going to be free agent uh, in '91, and I'm going to I'm going to go. I'm going to go somewhere. If you can get a trade, and I and you know we we like it, we'll do it." So they came back to us. And Bobby, of course, was really shocked. He's like. All right, Murph. You, you know you got it. He goes, I'm, I'm, you know, I don't know what to say. He just kind of speechless. But I, he said, okay. You know, I hear you, and we'll honor that. And he came back to me, and and uh, my agent Bruce Church, they said Philly wants you. They're going to give us, a, you know, some prospects. I think Tommy Green ended up going with me. Uh, a part of that. I,
2: yeah, yeah, uh, that's right.
1: And they're going to give you, and they're going to extend you. So I'm like thinking Philly they they got some you know good players they're going in the right direction it's going to be a big adrenaline boost for me because no matter what you say that's a that's a New York type crowd where there's there's it's a louder crowd Uh, I need I need a complete kind of change Uh, and I said okay let's do it and uh, so yeah getting up there was really weird it was really just really weird. I didn't know what to do, but uh, Daryl uh, Knowles was wearing number three. He took it off and gave it to me. I think he wore 33. He was the pitching coach up there. Uh, you know, just felt like it was it was great. It was a crazy bunch of guys. They'll, they'll be the first to admit that. But got welcomed with uh, open arms. Schmidt, he actually came up to me, Mike Schmidt. He had retired, I think, the year before. He was in the clubhouse one day after I was there for a week or so. He goes, you know what? He said, this is pretty cool. He goes, I've always wondered what it'd been like to play out somewhere other than Chile. And uh, and so I had a great experience. I might say I was feeling really good, especially the next 91. Uh, or maybe it was... not. I, I just had a couple of spring trainings where I thought I was going to do really well. and I missed most 92 with some knee problems. So... It was kind of frustrating, but the experience was great. I'm glad I have a little connection to Philly. Great people running the organization, and I, I had a great experience there.
2: One of the things that happened when you were in Philly that to me is kind of, I mean, it's, it, it, maybe it's strange to say that it's heartwarming, but the uh, the, the little incident that you had uh, there when you guys were playing the Braves at the vet, when I believe it was, uh, I believe Otis Nixon got hit by a pitch, and Bobby Cox told Tommy Glavin that he said, you "We're going to hit the first guy that comes up for Philadelphia," and it turns out to be you. And t- Tommy Glavin doesn't want to hit ya. you. Could could you kind of tell that story of how that went down? Because I was I was actually watching the video of that earlier today, and it, it had to be the least enthusiastic. Coming inside on somebody that I believe I've ever seen in a in a baseball game.
1: Yeah, uh, the most awkward thing I've ever went through. Uh, but yeah, they're, they're, you know, we had a thing in Atlanta the week before, and uh, and Otis had had uh, had actually used his spikes in a in a fight. To uh, clete one of our bullpen pitchers, Wally Ritchie, and so uh, the bullpen told Wally, "said Hey, we're going to get Otis if our starters don't get him today." So nothing happens, and and there's nothing going on, and you know, so we're all thinking, "Well, this is over. No one really cares about what happened down there. It's over." And then, <laughs> then Roger McDowell comes. In, his pitching coach for the Braves now and he hits Otis and everybody you know goes crazy and Bobby was mad and it's kind of like you know part of the etiquette is you take care of your problem when you get the chance instead of waiting and so now Bobby's in his mind we got another problem (laughs) (laughs) and one of the things you do is you hit the first guy up and I'm running off the field and Blauser's yelling at me, We're gonna get you, Murph, we're gonna get you and I'm, just, I'm like, I look over <laughs> I look over and I'm laughing and I'm like you know, Bobby will. <laughs> right. It's not it's not it's not me. It's that this is what you have to do. If you're not gonna hit I'm 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 a Philly now. I'm, right. You know. So Bobby goes, Hit the first guy up and Glav goes, Bobby, it's Murph <laughs> <laughs> Bobby just—I don't care who it is. Here, the first guy, and he—he he was mad. Everybody's mad, and so I get up, and sure enough, I'm like, "This something's weird." And 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 Tom Gladwin throws it, in, you know, not very hard. I'm just like, "Okay, well that—that that was weird." Then he—I go, he's going to do it again. He does it again, and you'll see by that third time, I'm in the corner of the batter's but I'm I'm right. moving out. Right. I'm like, I'm not going to just sit in here and take it. And I wish I would have sat in there and taken it, because it wasn't that hard. And Glav took some heat for not hitting me. But <laughs> he, could was... he didn't want to. He was trying to respect me. He was trying to respect Bobby. It really put Tommy in a. Terrible situation, so. Yeah, no doubt we've about laughed. it. <laughs> we've, we've laughed a little bit.
2: Yeah, that one, not to me. It, you know, it's it's almost. Like, it might be the only intentional walk in the history of baseball where the the pitcher just did it on the inside corner. Uh, right. right. But uh, but you know, I think it was Don Sutton who uh, famously said that uh, you might be the only guy in baseball who could uh, have a legitimate claim to having twenty four good friends in the uh, in the locker room. So. <laughs>
1: Well, it, I, yeah, that's really a nice thing, and you know, I it, it was, it's weird, um, because I was, you know, the veteran guy when, when Glav came up and Spolzy, and they're probably looking at me like, you know, like I looked at Nuxy, you know, when I came up, and that's like, okay, we're hitting the first guy up, and I'm a pitcher, and it's it's Phil Negro, I mean, I I I don't want to hit Phil
2: Negro, <laughs> uh,
1: uh, but. You know, the unwritten rules dictate certain things, and it was an
2: awkward thing for sure. Well, Dale, I got to ask you here as we wrap this up. What are your thoughts about the uh, the new ballpark for the Braves uh, that they're going to be moving into? Because we were talking earlier about how there's only a couple of National League ballparks left from from your day, and and you know now we're we're already retiring uh, Turner Field, which is. Kind of incredible, uh, you know, pretty short run for that ballpark. What are your thoughts on the uh, the new venue there?
1: Well, yeah, absolutely. Very, very unusual. Uh, very surprising, except when you understand that the Braves want to control uh, the area around it. They just leased Turner Field, wanted to work out something with the city. It didn't work out. And so uh, I got a tour the other day and had have have driven around it uh, by quite a bit. The fan experience is gonna be incredible. I don't think there's any question about that. Uh we've got to turn things around so we're so we're winning some more games to make it even even more uh, enjoyable. But uh forty I think forty one thousand people, the seats are close, even you in the upper deck, you're gonna be closer. Um just a whole bunch of things around the ballpark that are gonna make it fun fun. Restaurants, uh uh, retail space, uh, the design of the ballpark, uh, is, is gonna be unique. I think 40% of it is gonna be in shade by one o'clock in the afternoon, and I think 40% of it could be covered, uh, in case of rain. I, I it's gonna be state of the art, uh, digitally speaking, Wi-Fi access. Comcast is, has got, is, is partnering with the Braves as a building Office building right on the grounds. Uh, the battery, the retail space and restaurants will be, uh, a lot of entertainment. Um, everybody will get there early and it's going to be year-round fun, uh, by SunTrust Park, uh, you know, year-round entertainment. And, uh, yeah, and again, the, the, the ballpark itself is going to be fun. It's going to have some quirks, in it. It's got a six foot eye fence. Uh, extending, uh, from the left field foul pole for, you know, 50, 60 feet. Uh, the right center field gap is going to be a little further in, but with a little higher wall. It's got brick out there. It's got padding. It's going to require some, uh, thinking on an outfielder's, uh, from an outfielder's standpoint off the wall. Um, and just overall, uh, uh, you know, I wish I was playing now. It's, it looks like, <laughs> It looks like just it's going to be a fun night at the ballpark, and you know, Braves, know uh, we got to win. You know, turn things around to make it more fun, but uh, it's going to be exciting.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's always an exciting thing for fans when you when you got a new facility to to go out and and hopefully the Braves will uh, start getting things turned around as they uh, as they make the transition over there. Uh, D- Dale Murphy, I-, I can't thank you enough, my friend. Uh, I-, I remember the uh, the night I was actually at a White Sox game uh, here in Chicago when I I looked down at my phone and it said Dale Murphy followed you on Twitter, and I had oh. to do a I had to do a double take. You know, is that Dale Murphy the baseball player or you know Dale Murphy the accountant? Uh, you know, from somewhere. So. Uh,
0: I appreciate
2: that. But yeah, definitely, definitely a thrill, and uh, you know, can't thank you enough. Let me let me ask you one thing here as I let you go because this one I almost let get by me. Best fastballs? Did Nolan Ryan have the best fastball that you ever faced, or, or and if it wasn't Ryan, who was it?
1: Well, I'd have to say him and Jr. Uh, definitely, probably consistent consistently. Yeah, Nolan Ryan. I don't know what Nolan Ryan would have been like as a kid when he first came up. Right. Because when I faced him, it it, it it looked pretty fast to me. Yeah, I'd have to say. Then there's there's occasional guys that sprinkled throughout my career that it would take me a little time to, to think. Lee Smith out of the bullpen would be would be one guy that would, would come to bind right now. But Nolan, J.R., Lee Smith, that's part of the game that's changed so much. It, it just wasn't a part of the game hard, hard throwing. There was a lot of pitchers that had some, uh, you know, at least a couple pitchers on your, each staff had some finesse, were finesse pitchers. And uh, so those are, those are the top three, I think, of uh, Nolan, J.R., and, and Lee Smith.
2: Outstanding. Outstanding. Well, Dale, listen, you've got an open invitation to come back on this podcast at any time. I can't thank you enough. It means the world to me, and uh, I know for all your fans that have been listening. So uh, we wish you continued success in life and the best in things. I know you've got, I know you've got eight kids. So I have five. So yeah, you're great. you're an inspiration to me that this can actually be done, and you know you can survive uh, through yeah. it because uh, that can't be a, a picnic.
1: Well, you know, you know, our wives are are amazing, uh, and. Uh but if you can get past, you know, three and four, then you might as well just keep going. Jim Gaffigan says it best when you, you know, having a fourth, uh, a fourth child is like drowning and someone throwing you a baby. Uh, <laughs> and, so, <laughs> and so, uh, if you can get through that, hey, just keep going. Uh, but, you know, I have, uh, obviously Nancy, uh, I don't know how she did it. During my career, putting up with me and the travel and the ups and downs of a career and raising these kids, I'm very lucky to have a great, great kids, and now nine great, now nine great <laughs> grandkids—not great grandkids, but uh, <laughs> great, great kids, uh, great kids—and uh, I was very thankful for for Nancy, and you know, I'm very blessed. Thank you very much. It's fun to reminisce. Let's do it again.
2: Well, that was certainly a pleasure. My sincere thanks to Dale Murphy for joining me today. You know, the only thing better than talking to a childhood hero like Murph is talking to him and finding out that he's even nicer than you would have hoped for. One of the classiest individuals you'd ever want to meet in sports or in life. Dale Murphy. My guest next week, you know him from television programs such as Life Goes On, ER, Melrose Place, 24, and he can currently be seen on Pretty Little Liars. Emmy Award-winning actor-director Chad Lowe will be on the podcast next week. We'll be talking some Hollywood. We'll be talking growing up in the 1970s and 80s. And, of course, we'll be talking sports. So until next time, I'm Ricky Cobb, and I look forward to seeing you again on the Super 70 Sports Podcast.